Hey, welcome to Thumbnail Podcast. Uh, I'm Lewis, and we're going to get into the podcast in just a second. I just have an announcement to make. We are going to be moving to YouTube. So um, starting basically right away, we're going to be use, uh, doing the podcast live on every other Tuesday um, on YouTube, which is great because now we'll be able to, to use more visual elements. We still will be... Um, using the audio from those and, and putting them up as audio podcasts for those of you that prefer that. But I really definitely recommend coming over to, to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you can watch the podcast live. Um, it's You could just search Louis Rosignol on YouTube and find my channel, or there is a link through my website, which is you know through my Instagram. You can easily find it. Um, Anyway, Joe and I are really excited about the opportunity to to do something live like that because it, it enables you, if you want to join us, like I said, every other Tuesday at noon Eastern, you could um, be live in the chat and we'll be able to take questions sometimes. Um, we're also going to be able to do like portfolio reviews and, and visual things too, which we can't do with just an audio podcast. And I think that's important because we're talking about visual art most of the time. And it makes sense to have or to be able to have a visual element to it. Um, so we're excited for that. We hope that you can come and join us. Um, and the podcast you're about to listen to, we interviewed Scott Nash, um, who's done all sorts of crazy and cool things. Um, you probably most you've probably seen his work, even if you don't know it. Um, he created um, logos for Nickelodeon. Um, and back in the early days of cable TV, he had a lot to do with the graphic design of, of a lot of different channels. And he's just done some really cool stuff, a lot of children's books. Um, and so I hope you enjoy that. We hope you enjoy that interview. I think you will. We've also got a great interview with Carla Sondheim coming up. Um, and anyway, that's it. That's the, the wrap for now. So check us out on YouTube and enjoy this great podcast. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to Thumbnail, a visual arts podcast. I'm Joe Roshert, illustrator, animator, and adjunct professor. And I'm Louis Rosignol, visual artist. And today on the podcast, we actually have someone that we know pretty well. And when we both went to Maine College of Art, Scott was working there, Scott Nash. And Scott, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little, just a little quick, if you had to give us like an elevator pitch about yourself, who you are. <laughs> I am, I think, first and foremost... Well, first of all, I want to say I'm really proud of you guys. As an educator, I really enjoy the fact that you guys have both succeeded in developing professional careers and that you have a podcast. I think it's amazing. I mean, it's just the sort of thing that I love because I think first and foremost, as a creative person and artist, I consider myself a divergent thinker, which means that I don't like to particularly categorize myself. I'm a graphic designer, an illustrator, a writer. Lately, I'm a videographer and I'm an impresario as well. You know, I like to make things happen and I love to collaborate with people. And it's been difficult this last year because I like nothing more than being in the same room with people like you and talking about ideas and talking about what's going on and where there are opportunities for artists. Uh, I find it very exciting. I derive energy from that. I established a design firm way back when called Big Blue Dot and Corey McPherson Nash. Did a lot of work in the entertainment field. Got to work with uh, establishing the identity for Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Comedy Central. I worked with a lot of entertainment businesses because, frankly, that was the area that nobody was taking seriously at the time. And it's sort of become a rule for me to look to the opportunities that nobody's taking seriously. That's the stuff that it sort of intrigues me. And I'll get back to that in a little bit. I am an illustrator of over 50 children's books. I can't quite believe that. Uh, it freaks me out every time I say it. I'm writing a heck of a lot. I'm, I'm writing as a way of, uh, I use drawing as a way of getting into my writing. And I am now the executive director of a, a nonprofit arts organization called Illustration Institute. And our mission is to increase awareness and appreciation for the art, the glorious art of illustration. And I have to tell you, I'm having the time of my life in that capacity. Uh, it is my new art form. The way that the Institute manifests itself is that we do 
a ton of programming at venues throughout throughout Maine and New England. Uh, we'd like to reach out beyond that. We launch outrageous exhibitions uh, that I'm very proud of uh, that are illustration-based and exceedingly popular. And we have an artist residency on Peaks Island that, uh, as if that wasn't enough, it's, it's, it's located in what was a former Bohemian enclave on Peaks Island. And this is the, every stage of my life as an artist has been meaningful. This is the new inter- iteration of meaningful work for me. <laughs> that's that's, that's awesome. really cool. I, I mean, <laughs> I was looking at the lineup, the lineup of artists for 2021, and it, it looks like a really good mix of, yeah. of people. So, and there are they all coming out to do a res- residency on Peaks Island? The ones that are listed, they are. And I'm I, I am flat out giddy about this. I mean, this is the other thing that's been great for me is that I've had you know as an illustrator and art director, I've hired a lot of illustrators, and I but I also you know greatly admire illustration and illustrators illustrators and I have my heroes. Um, and what's been great is that I've been able to reach out to, you know, the likes of Henrik Drescher or Anita Kuntz and say, would you like to come and visit us here on Peaks Island? And oftentimes their their answers are, and this has happened more than once, is hell yes. So the the uh, yeah. <laughs> residency is the sort of the currency by which we're able to bring uh, illustrators from all over the world to Maine. And it's really a dream come true, not only for me, but hopefully for you as well, because it, it just never, it never ends. And we have an interest. We have so much interest in what we're doing at the Institute because it's fairly unique. There are not many artist residencies that really focus on, well, there are virtually no uh, residencies that focus on the broad range of illustration. We're very proud of the fact that we're able to uh, create a diverse offering of artists. We curate our years very carefully to make sure that we don't have too many of one type of artist. You know, we don't want to have too many children's book illustrators or too many, you know, we love children's book illustrators, but we want to make sure that we're representing illustration in its glorious totality. Yeah, that's really cool. I noticed that just for this year. I know Joe Ciard, is that, how do you pronounce it? Ciardello? Ciardello. Um, what? And I would... Ciardello. I've, I've always... <laughs> Why doesn't that surprise me? I was just going to say his work is, is, yeah, his work is so great. And I've always, I've admired it for a long time. So I was really excited. And I, all the other artists I was excited about too, but him in particular, I was so excited. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I have to say, I was thinking, I was sort of thinking of you when we selected him as well, because you are, I sort of batch people as being kindred spirits and you have a sort of a direct quality to your artwork that I greatly admire. Uh, and Joe does as well. I mean, you feel like, the, you know, we may learn that this is not true either of him or you for that matter, but it feels like it happens in a very direct fashion. You know, like the, the work is not overly fussed over, the flaws are there, uh, and which gives ultimately is what gives soul to artwork. It doesn't matter to me whether it's done digitally or done with real ink. It's just, it's the direct quality. That's what we should be. That's what I, that, I greatly admire that quality in artwork. I, I love stuff that is imperfect, yeah. basically. I hope you don't mind my saying that, but it is true. That, that's no, how we I love that. Well, the one yeah. that I'm really excited about, too, is, uh, and this is, I'm thinking about you, Joe, as an animator. We have Nina Paley coming. Nina Paley is uh, an, an, a renegade cool. animator who creates feature films and thumbs, his, thumbs her nose at... I think I hope she wouldn't mind my saying that at the conventions of the industry, copyright. She really is. I, I hate the word disruptor, but I'm going to use it because that's the one that popped into my head. But she creates films that are both beautiful and uh, exceedingly provocative. Uh, her, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Nina Paley created a feature film called Sedith Sings the Blues, which introduces Hindu uh, stories, stories that are around the religion of Hinduism. That, set to 1930s blues music in a way that is both beautiful, sacred, and profane all all at once. And her latest feature film is one called Seder Masochism, which I'm just delighted by now because it basically, it's a critique of the history of religions and how goddesses were usurped by male gods in in many cultures. And it's a brilliant film. uh, And it's brilliant for some of the reasons that we were discussing earlier about incorporating imperfection and incorporating uh, sort of uh, intuitive qualities 
that we weren't privy to prior to the digital age. You know, the restrictions on creating films, you know, back in the day of actual film were great. You know, the pressures were very great. And, and now we're starting to see a different type of filmmaking based on the fact that we literally can make these things at home. Right, Joe? Would you agree to that? Yeah, yeah. it's true. Yeah, I would agree. I think it, there's some magic in being able to do what would have taken, I don't know, a team of 50 to 100 people, yeah. you know, years ago. Now yeah. I can do myself. That's cool. I look forward. I look forward to that. One of the things I want to mention about your work, too, is that you've got uh, your art, your animation is looking as direct as your drawing. And I think that we're seeing more of that in the animation where the hand of the of the drawer, which is a word I'm using a lot, an ugly word that I'm using a lot these days because it's a good word, is really apparent in the final product. And we're, we're seeing, you know, in a way that, you know, I love old Disney films and Pixar movies, but they're so polished. And what's great about some of the work that's happening directly in small studios has a real sense of the artist and an immediacy to it that I really enjoy. I would agree with that. I know it's easy to talk about other artists yeah. and, and you can get enthusiastic, but I do I think we should do a little bit of we talk about you and and how you got into illustration and graphic design and yeah. kind of go back to that because we talk Joe and I talk we're both fairly new illustrators and so we talk a lot about you know what we're dealing with now but I want to know more about you know when you first started and how you even got into it and you know how you got your first job that really interests me. Okay, I'm happy to do that. I think like many of us who are visual thinkers, we learn early on if it hasn't been beaten out of us in school, that there's magic to drawing. And you learn that as early as, say, for me, it was as early as second grade. Um, I believe that there are a lot of other drawers out there that just somehow get lost along the way because they've determined that they're not good at it. And it still happens to this day. It breaks my heart, actually. Mm -hmm. But I received, you know, positive reinforcement from my friends for drawing, uh, I don't know, Disney characters as a kid, and then <laughs> drawing caricatures of teachers and various people in high school, and uh, found that, you know, that art was a way that I could speak and convey ideas to the world. I think in some ways helps somebody that could start out as an introvert uh, become a little bit more extroverted when, when you're actually drawing and communicating through that form. I was sort of really taken by, by drawing as a means of communication from a very early point in my life. And I started to very early on uh, express enthusiasm for drawing and <laughs> became like a little, you know, like uh, sixth grade advocate for drawing. And then in high school and such, you know, I was known as, you know, spent a lot of time in the in the art in the art rooms, at the, which was in, you know, one of the, the far reaches of the high school. But I, I immersed myself in every aspect of art I could. I did everything from egg tempera to I did a lot of pottery, I did a hell of a lot of pottery. I'm really grateful to the fact that I did that because that helps me sort of created an innate sense of engineering, which applies to one of the things I do is toy design, you know, and I find myself understanding how a toy is made because I spent a lot of time in the shop and in, in that wing of the, of the art school. And then I got noticed because I talked a lot about art and I ended up getting a job at a t-shirt company called, I'm not kidding, this is a real name of a company, it's called Cotton Pickin' Tees. And I was hired as a uh, darkroom assistant. And then I just kept putting up my artwork in the darkroom. And one of the art directors named John Sullivan uh, noticed the work that I was doing. I uh, said, hey, that could be a great t-shirt. It was the dumbest design ever. It was so damn cute. It was a turtle holding, I'm not kidding, a turtle holding a uh, little turtle holding a daisy. Put it on a t-shirt and it sold like crazy. And that experience got me one into the art room, but also gave me a tangible connection to how people reacted to various designs. It also tapped into my interest in being uh, what I call, I used this term earlier, a divergent thinker. I don't know that I ever expressed this to you as, you know, when we were working together at Maine College of Art, but I am, I'm dubious of style. I always have been as an artist. I don't, I know that you guys have actually done a discussion on how to develop a style, but I think that styles can be fickle. I think that they can be capricious and I don't, embrace style very much. I actually really enjoy, uh, I've always thought of myself as a designer in that 
I will modify my style based on the specific context I'm creating it for. I went through undergraduate school uh, at a small art school called the Swain School of Design. A fantastic, you know, academic. It felt like like an like an art academy. And I spent my time. I did. I was a dual major in painting and graphic design. I took no illustration courses whatsoever. I uh, got involved in politics, uh, school politics, creating uh, sort of on campus protests and such against some things that we weren't we didn't particularly care for at the time. I was a bit of a rabble rouser, I suppose. Went off to graduate school at Cranbrook Academy of Arts, uh, did virtually no illustration there, concentrated almost entirely on experimental typography. I did virtually no illustration while I was there. And I loved my time there. Uh, if you looked at the work that I did there, you would think that there was no connection at all to what I do now, but it actually formed my way of thinking more than any other art training in my life, spending two years just immersing myself in something else. Uh, after that, I got a phone call from my, uh, my the former department head at, at my undergraduate school, the Swain School of Design, who invited me up straight out of graduate school to come and joined his design firm, Corey and & Company. And within a year, I was a partner in that design firm in Boston. And we spent the first few years in, at Corey & Company uh, doing the sort of work you would expect uh, a Boston-based design firm to be doing, uh, which means a lot of uh, university work, a lot of uh, institutional work. It was all very interesting to me. It was all on the other side. I couldn't, I couldn't have a steady diet of that. And so I started, this is the mid 80s. I started to go to my partners to start looking south down in, in New York City for other opportunities. And we literally knocked on doors of various industries. And the door that opened to us was the door that nobody else was interested in in the time, which was the cable industry. And we, uh, our first big project with, was with MTV, uh, developing type fonts for their interstitials, which turned into our working with Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, and most of the best known cable networks in the world, basically. And that was a time of great experimentation. And it also allowed me, as somebody who likes to do a lot of different things, the opportunity to work with animators and musicians and computer designers to develop on-air branding and even some programming for uh, those various companies. We love having guests because, you know, then we get a chance to listen and, and learn okay. from them. And so we're happy to have you keep going. Okay. I'm so, okay. I was always been, I don't think I've ever heard this from you and I've known you for a while. So it's really interesting to hear like how you got into these jobs, especially in, for the cable networks, because, you know, those are some, the Comedy Central, like the Globe with the three buildings. I, yeah. Like that's yeah. a pretty iconic logo, you know, that people have seen. So it's cool that, that I know the person that created it. I'm sorry. Yes, I am a very, consider myself a very lucky opportunist. I am both, I'm lucky. And I mean, those things go together, by the way. You know, so you made, yeah, you made your own luck because you were persistent and you, like you said, you knocked on doors when, when nobody else was doing it. Yeah. You know, you went to these cable companies and nobody, why was nobody interested in, the, at, in that at the time, do you think? Oh, it was considered to be the ghetto of, I shouldn't say ghetto, but the, but yeah, it was considered to be the sort of the ghetto of the entertainment industry. But what was great about that, nobody took it seriously. Anybody who was anybody was going to be in the movie business or television, right? Nobody believed in cable. As a result, rogues like me, you know, I was allowed in, even though I had no background in uh, television production at all. Also, a lot of women made their mark in uh, cable. A lot of a lot of the executives that we see in the entertainment industry, well, certainly in early two thousands, came out of cable industry. I mean, Oprah, um, uh, Jerry Laybourne, Ann Sweeney, who is the who is eventually the president of ABC Cap Cities, all came out of places like Nickelodeon and you know Cartoon Network and such. So it was you know that it was it it opened the doors to uh, people that were outsiders, which was brilliant. 
you know, and it was a great opportunity for us. And like I said, you know, you need to think of yourself. I like to think of myself as a lucky opportunist because I'm I'm looking for that next opportunity, which for me is going to be in NFTs. So, I mean, that's that's the area that we were just talking about. That We just recorded a podcast last week about that. Yeah. Who were you talking to? I think that's super exciting. Just each other. We, we, we researched it ourselves and then we were just discussing it. And but. I'm not very intellectually smart, I don't think, <laughs> like as far as I had a hard time even understanding NFTs and, and how the whole thing works. And I tried to sign up and turn a piece of art into an NFT. And I was just having so much difficulty. It wasn't didn't seem very user friendly. Right. Um, We're trying to fix that. But I think the best way to think about NFTs, I'm also find myself being an advocate for artists. I want to see artists succeed. I want to see all artists succeed. I really am seriously. And it's a difficult time for artists right now. It's it, You have to be exceedingly resourceful to make money. In almost every industry, our wages are going down. It's been devalued in a lot, in a lot of ways. And this is adjusting the value of art to a place where it should be, in my opinion. So if you take all the weirdness out of it and the difficulties of entry that you were, that you were citing and start to think about uh, NFTs as being uh, a proposition that allows you to sell your art to a buyer and retain the copyright and also the physical version of the work if you created a physical version that allows you to be paid royalties on every, every resale of that, that piece of artwork. It allows the provenance of the artwork to be clear. It creates a smart contract between a buyer and an artist that allows for ongoing, you know, sort of relationships with the buyer. If you look at it just from those perspectives, you you look at the, like the groundwork for it. It reminds me of you know, sort of. I, I have great admiration for the publishing world because. The publishing world, the standard is the artist retains the copyright, the uh, publisher pays in advance to the artist, and the the artist uh, gets royalties over a period of time. And it's an industry that acknowledges the value of the artist. This whole world, and there may be some flaws that I'm not seeing in this, is starting at that place. It's starting at the place that we have respect and admiration for artists. And for artists that are not heard of and, and not seen. So I, I'm not, and I've been looking into this for, you know, now three or four months, you know, looking into NFTs. Now it's becoming, you know, something that's popping up everywhere. But I, I do think it's something that we should be taking seriously as artists. Uh, I started an offshoot of Corey McPherson Nash in the late 80s called Big Blue Dot, which is a, a company that specialized in kids' media. I love this little story in that I went in and told my partners that I was I was going to leave the company because I was I was bored with what we were doing, you know, that we were doing, you know, I was I was feeling a little stagnant. And I said I really and I was really interested in just focusing on kids media because I saw it as something that was very creative. And my partners, uh, instead of saying, uh, well, so long, they said, Well, would you be willing to start a new division, a new company that's based on kids media? And I said, sure. So I wrote a business plan and developed a, a company called Big Blue Dot, which was under the umbrella of Corey, Corey McPherson Nash. So I, I retained my uh, my partners. And we grew that into a company that was, I think, in many ways, larger than uh, Corey McPherson Nash, because people loved the idea of a design firm that focused on kids, kids media. Even though our focus was narrow, our mandate was wide. We were looking to work in every aspect of kids media. We had a research wing. We created a publication called The Big Blue Box, which was a quarterly uh, box subscription before box, box subscriptions were a thing that we that we sold to corporate entities uh, to talk about kid trends. Uh, we were a, uh, a deep and thoughtful and highly creative design firm that focused on all aspects of kids media. Did that for a few years and then decided I wasn't doing enough creative work, that I was doing more management work. So I actually was made the hard decision to walk away from that company uh, at its most successful time to actually start writing and illustrating children's books. And that's what prompted my move to Maine. And we moved here in, well, we bought the house here in 1997. And I have been producing children's books ever since. 
and I was just thinking, okay, that's the end. You know, I'm done with that. You know, that's that's a perfect sort of story. But then I found myself connecting with Portland and loving Portland and loving the uh, sort of welcoming aspects of the city, which is rare. You know, there's a tangible connection that we have on, you know, at the best of times with our cultural community. And started to get interested in Maine College of Art, which I always thought of as a, to be honest with you, as a fallback if my career in children's book illustration didn't work. I did a couple of lectures at Maine College of Art, uh, one on illustration, the other on graphic design. And after the talk on illustration, uh, the dean at the time and um, Mark Jamra and uh, sort of pulled me aside, took me out to dinner and said, hey, you know, we don't have any illustration courses at Maine College of Art. Would you consider teaching one? And I was feeling cheeky that night. So I said, well, no, I'm not interested in teaching illustration at your school because you don't have a major at, um, at, at Maine College of Art. And why don't you? Which got us into this wonderful discussion about how to, uh, how to develop a, a, um, an illustration department. And by the time we left that evening, I had agreed to help the school develop uh, an illustration department, uh, which is one of the things I'm most proud of in my life because it's, uh, I, I think it's a remarkable department, certainly, and it just keeps getting better with the likes of you in the, in the school and having you know, the, the new department head, Marianne Lloyd, uh, running things because she was part of that initial discussion on how we were going to develop uh, 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 an, an art program. And it, we've had our, we had our hiccups along the way, but I think ultimately it's going to be a very strong program. And then to bring us up to recent times, I continue teaching. I've, I've taught uh, since Mecca, I've taught at Johns Hopkins, taught actually writing at Johns Hopkins, which incorporate in my course is unique in that it incorporates drawing into the writing process. Um, and then uh, four years ago, I was giving a lecture on Peaks Island about who I am as an artist, but also uh, my inclination to come up with, I want the, the theme of my talk was changing it up. And I wanted to talk about the ideas that I have keep, been keeping in notebooks and developing, but I haven't been sharing them because we fear, I think sometimes as artists, that somebody's going to steal an idea. I decided, well, I'm going to open it up and I'm going to pitch some ideas that are intrigued me. And one of the ideas that I had uh, talked about, even at Maine College of Art was something called the Illustration Institute, which would be uh, something akin to a sort of a school without walls that allowed, uh, at that point, I was thinking about sort of graduate level programs uh, for people that were interested in studying illustration in a more casual basis. After my lecture, I guess it was an effective lecture. Uh, this was one of many ideas that I talked about, but after the lecture, uh, two individuals came up and families came up and said that they wanted to support this idea in a substantive way. And a third gentleman walked up to me who I knew just sort of casually uh, and asked and mentioned that he had this land on Peaks Island that was there was a former Bohemian enclave up at Tolman Heights. And it was always the dream of his late wife and he there be an artist residency at that place. And even though that was not part of my initial plan, as a matter of fact, the initial concept for the Illustration Institute was a school with no buildings, uh, we quickly realized that there was a great asset and advantage to having a residency for the reasons I mentioned earlier that we're able to bring in artists from all over the world. And in a nutshell, to date, We've had 66 artists out at Illustration Institute. We've done as many, if not more, programs. We've done large exhibitions. We have two exhibitions planned for this year, this summer, and in the fall. And it's been uh, an amazing ride so far it, on so many levels. Uh, it's And it's, it's really, I think, attracted attention to, well, to illustration, uh, in that we're giving respect to illustration, but also to Maine. And our goal is nothing less than creating something like Monhegan for illustrators on Peaks Island. That is our goal. I know that sounds like that's hyperbolic, but it's not. That's really what we're doing. It's really cool. I, as someone who's gone to some of the, the workshops and uh, lectures at the Portland Library, um, and then on Peaks Island, I went to the Henrik Drescher workshop. It was just such a cool opportunity that he, he you know, they come to this residency, but then they can they can share their skills with local artists or people who are interested in learning and, and not even artists. Some people go to the lectures that just are curious and, and like to learn. Right. 
Some people go to workshops that don't have any art skills at all. And I love those people as much as anyone else. I just, I just can't like, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that people will be brave enough or, or, or we're being welcoming enough that they feel, yeah, I'm going to participate in this. You know, I think some of us, you know, could be a little cowed by the fact that you've got Anita Kunz, you know, doing, you know, doing a workshop. But for the people that are not in our, you know, in our world, it's just a delightful experience. And there's they come to it with no baggage, which is very pleases me to no end, actually. I have a question for you. Do you yeah. have so for this this summer, I, I like I, we talked about, I saw the list of artists. Do you have specific workshops and things planned or are you still waiting because of COVID to see kind of what happens? Or, you know, I'm curious about that, obviously, because I would love to be able, to, if you are going to be doing some, to be able to go. But I know right now it's kind of hard to tell. I'm ever hopeful. I'm actually increasingly hopeful that we'll be able to have live programming. But one of the great attributes, I think, of artists is that we're good at improvising, right? So we are planning to have all of the artists come. Last year, it didn't make sense. Everybody was too nervous about what COVID was and what it meant to, you know, what the protocols would be. I think we know we've, we're, we're feeling quite safe about having the artists come in. I don't know what people's appetite will be for doing live events or for uh, attending live events, but as soon as we can, we will. If we're not able to do it at the beginning of the summer, we will be doing more recording. Uh, we've been, I've learned so much about video recording in the last, uh, the last few months. We've converted the Faison, I mean, sorry, the Maza studio into a recording studio. We've been doing a series called Drawing is Thinking, which I'm very excited about. And we're, we have another, another series planned if, we, if we're not able to do live workshops that's called um, Art and Story, where the idea is to walk around and be with the artist and talk about yeah, in a, in a hopefully a casual and conversational way about how they approach illustration, narrative art, and thinking in general. So uh, that's so we one way or the other there will be programming. I tend to prefer uh, produced pieces as opposed to live cast uh, uh, programs because there's a lot of that out there. And I just I think it's from my background. I, I like to edit and you know create music for and do all of that process because I think the product is just a little bit better, at least in my hands. So, But yes, we're hoping we're doing uh, two exhibitions. Uh, we're doing one that begins uh, in June at the Brickstore Museum called The Art of Mending, which is uh, an exhibition about this fantastic world and aesthetic of people that the artists that use mending as part of their work. You know, it could be, it's basically the, the, the easy way to talk about it is fixing that which is broken. And so we've got, you know, some artists that you're probably familiar with, but also artists from all around the world bringing together artworks that are, you know, uh, I don't know, there's an artist named Susanna Bauer, who's German, whose work is, she does embroidery on brown leaves. She does this detailed embroidery and stitches up holes in leaves. And that doesn't do it justice describing it, but the work is magnificent. And and it's exceedingly moving. We have uh, Joshua Dixon, who's actually an alumni of Maine College of Art, a photographer, who's worked with himself as a subject. Uh, he was disfigured, I think is the right word, uh, by uh, an attack of, of a dog. And he's used himself as a subject as he's gone through reconstructive surgery. And the photographs are, are strikingly beautiful. So, and then in the fall, we have an exhibition at the Portland Public Library called Illustrated Monsters by Monster Illustrators, which is, uh, I, I've had planned for about three years, and we're pulling together some of the best illustrators you can imagine. They've agreed to loan us their work and also incorporate stories into uh, the exhibition as well. We have like Barry Mosier's Frankenstein, which is, I think, one of the great illustrated Frankensteins ever. But then we also have Emil Ferris, who is uh, the author and illustrator of my my favorite thing is Monsters, which is I think one of the great graphic novels of our time. That's really cool. Yeah, I really appreciate about what you're doing. Yeah. So I I don't know why, but when I when I was in school and I was learning illustration and I was looking at other illustrators like illustrators' work that were making a living doing it. I had in my mind like this community of illustrators that all knew each other. 
Yeah. That's just not reality. Most of these illustrators are freelance. They work from their homes or their studios and they don't know other illustrators really. Maybe they know a few, but the, it's cool that you're creating like this community and you are inviting illustrators to become part of this community. And I don't know, it's like something that maybe we don't have as artists because we're, we stay at home so much and a lot of artists are maybe a little bit antisocial in some ways or they feel socially awkward. So I, I really like that you're you're doing that and you're bringing people together. I actually have come to really enjoy uh, spending time with people that are socially awkward. I'm serious about that. Like, like <laughs> I, I think you find if you can create the right sort of environment, it can be brilliant. What I've learned in, in the series of Drawing is Thinking is that I am now, I think it's fair to say I'm addicted to sitting and watching one of my, you know, a fellow artist draw. This is a revelation for me. Watching somebody draw for an hour is, is, is I, I can't get enough of it. Not only their drawing, but their conversation as they're drawing, the lilt in their voice, the way they talk, the way they think about things as they're drawing. It's a way of really connecting. And it's why, you know, it's like something I, I never understood, you know, at, at places like Mecca, you know, students getting together and drawing together. I never quite understood that, but I now uh, very much embrace that idea. And I think we need to do more of that because that is back to what I was saying early on. It's one of the ways that we communicate. It makes the studio a little bit less lonely, especially especially if you're having these videos up while you're working yourself. I do this all the time as a way to inspire me to, to get working, you know, to stop procrastinating. And, and having someone else drawing on the screen or watching someone else draw is inspiring enough for me to get started, you know, and to, to draw with them. Yeah, I appreciated your paint mixing video. Uh, you're mixing paint and then doing a large <laughs> painting, but you incorporated the, the paint mixing. I was like, that is, that's fantastic. You know, that's, that's great. I, we need more of that type of thing. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, yes, we're behind the scenes. We are trying to create a community. Uh, I would like it to be a community. Like I, I love it when we do our workshops and programs, the, the little pods of discussion that happen afterwards are uh, something that I enjoy almost as much as the actual programming because we're it's somehow hearing somebody like Love is Wise talk about her process and her, her philosophy engenders a lot of conversation. It sort of opens the door to, to talking about what we do and other subjects as well. Yeah, it's, I think it's vitally important. It's another reason why I appreciate you guys doing this podcast. You know, it's another, it's another way to to hear what our community is doing and start to uh, to recognize the value and thought that goes into illustration and other forms of narrative yeah, art. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I was when we first started, I was wondering, you know, if anybody would even listen because we're talking about something that's so visual. Yeah. Maybe that's not interesting, but there's enough people out there that are are interested in in listening. And I got to say, I watched the two or the two newer the drawing is thinking videos you put. Yeah. The, the Jamie Hogan one I watched this morning, yeah. and I agree. Watching someone draw and and kind of talk while they're drawing, it's so interesting. And I've always been someone who liked to um, look at illustrations and and then maybe try to figure out how they drew it and what order they did things in. And so yeah. to watch the process and actually see that is is really enjoyable to me. And and, and so I, I definitely appreciate that. And that's a great way for you to share the Illustration Institute with people that aren't local to Maine, because anybody can watch those videos on YouTube. First of all, Jamie's, uh, I, I love uh, Jamie's video for its purity. You know, like she was mostly drawing. She was, she didn't say very much in her, in her, uh, in her video, but I love the fact that she, she didn't need to because she was demonstrating her thought process through the collage and drawing that she was doing. I think what you'll see is in the others, in the rest of the series is that people are a little bit more loquacious. They're talking about things and you, you will, I think you both will, and I hope the greater audience will will hear that lilt that I'm talking about this comfort that people have that these artists have with talking when they're drawing while they're drawing it's those things are connected in a very real way and my goal for this is for drawing is thinking is that I'm hoping to well first of all I'm hoping to record quite a few more and I'm going to be looking uh, especially for non artists because drawing is not exclusively the realm it's not not exclusively an artistic endeavor. I think it's a way that anybody, I think almost anyone, can uh, convey ideas, share ideas, develop ideas. And I, we, we're looking to find more subjects 
uh, that we'll talk about drawing outside of, you know, specifically illustration. I'm looking for a musician. I'm looking for, you know, a doctor. I'd love to find anyone who's willing to to draw for us and talk about how that's important. That's a really cool idea to, you know, because I, I wouldn't have even thought to do something like that to get people that maybe don't consider themselves to be artists, but to see, to, to watch their process and to hear their thinking, I think that would be really cool. Well, and like I was trying to figure out how to fix something in our house here. We we're trying to fi- figure out how to fix the spindles, which were, they're routed or they were milled spindles. They're sort of like clover leaves. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, I have to get a router bit to do this. And there's no way this is going to happen. I had a friend that's an engineer and said, who looked at it and said, no, 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 you don't need to use a router you don't, in the way that you're saying. He said, what you need to do is, and he did a sketch of this that was getting me to think additively rather than reductively about how to produce this, like t- rather than stripping away wood, you could build it. And what was lovely about the drawing, and I've kept the drawing, is that, you know, here's the, here's how you do it. And I was like, oh yeah, you can build this. I don't need to carve away to create this. And for some reason, even as a creative person, I hadn't thought about that option, but the engineer had, and he did a rudimentary drawing for me, which was exceedingly useful. So that's, that's the sort of thing I'm looking for as well. You know, ways to describe scientific concepts, ways to describe ideas in poetry, even, you know, like I'd like to see how far this goes with the idea that eventually I I would love to start to talk to cognitive scientists about this and see whether we could turn it into something that's more of a documentary. That's my hope. That's really cool. I think I have a pretty good library of art books and different illustration books. And one of my favorite books is called Sketchbooks, uh, Sketches from Explorers. So they're not artists. These people are just explorers. And some of the sketches are hundreds of years old. And the art is great in it. You know, they they don't consider themselves to be artists. They're exploring and they're just drawing different flowers that they see. And it's just so cool to, to see art like that. And so I appreciate what you're getting at for sure. Yeah. We've talked a lot about really great successes in your life, but we love identifying the failures and how profound, if not more profound, they are in our careers specifically. Are there failures that come to mind that you feel comfortable with sharing? There are failures. There's tons of funny uh, failures along the way. They don't particularly wound me. They enlighten and amuse me in the traditional sense, you know, uh, of amusement. You know, it's like I, I made terrible mistakes pitching ideas to places like Nickelodeon. My first you know, pitch at Nickelodeon was terrible. I had the, pre- you know, the CEO of Nickelodeon, who was executive at Viacom, really sort of frowning on my ideas, my initial ideas. But learning all of this stuff sounds cliche, but the truth of the matter is, I think that there is inspiration in failure, and there are little failures along the way. Uh, what I, the other thing that I look at beyond failures is our sort of missed opportunities, you know, looking at constantly worried about, am I, it's like a positive aspect of FOMO, you know, if you're missing out, you know, it's like, I, I want to be taking opportunities seriously. And also sometimes questioning my initial bias for an idea, like back to uh, sort of crypto art. Initially, I was repulsed by the idea. I couldn't stand what I was seeing. It just seemed like callous commercialism. But as you start to go sort of further into it and you get beyond your your initial bias or your aversion, sometimes something is revealed to you that is actually, that it has merit. You start to see what the actual core of an idea is. And so that, there were certainly missed opportunities along the way that are laughable now. Like we actually, uh, as a partner in Big Blue Dot early on in technology, I didn't believe, well, I worked with Meg Whitman. I don't know if you know that name at all, but she was one of my clients at Corey McPherson Nash. And she was uh, the CEO of StrideRight, which is a shoe company, and uh, and also was the was an executive at FTD, the florist company. But she went off to work at a new venture called uh, that was the the concept was to sell used that where people could sell used materials on online, and it was eBay. And I thought I thought that idea was ridiculous. You know, I thought there there was that made no sense whatsoever, and I didn't take it seriously. And that's something that I use as a lesson throughout my life. You know, like I like to I like to you know sort of second guess my initial aversion to things. And I, I sort of feel like you guys sort of share that that ethos that, that there's lots of opportunities out there. But I I've also learned it both in my 
my educational background and in my dealings with artists in my professional life is that as much as we like to think about artists as being open to ideas, we can also be incredibly uptight and myopic. And we tend to be very judgmental about, oh, I don't do digital art. No, I will not touch that stuff. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to hear about procreate. I don't want to hear about this. And I find that, you know, I have some respect for that, but I also, you know, find it, it's a little disheartening when you see creative people missing very exciting opportunities that are, I think, on balance, good and ex good for art, good for the development of art, and, and also good for the economics of art, meaning artists themselves, you know, making, <laughs> making a living, you know, uh, so... So that that didn't quite answer your question, but it's I, I guess there's little things along the way that sort of changed me, but I didn't spend a lot of time dwelling on them. They just they they I tend to sort of chuckle at them and move on, you know, move on to the next thing. That's the That's truth. Really interesting. I yeah. think I think you're right about artists having. I had an aversion to Instagram, like I I didn't really oh, like social really? media at all. And yeah. then I get over it. And now it's like the only way I make money is like through Instagram, basically. So it's like if you can get over these initial aversions you have to something, you might be able to have a breakthrough and, uh, you know, really thrive. And so maybe NFTs are something that I've initially tried and then I immediately stopped doing it because it, it was something that I, I couldn't figure out. But maybe I'll dive back in and see if it's something I can I can learn more about. Let me float a concept by you guys, see if you can relate to this. It's like, I've learned that I actually embrace discomfort. I like being uncomfortable. I actually don't like particularly like being comfortable. I really do. I'm intrigued by change. And I think that that has served me well over the years is that I, I actually like being feeling a little bit unbalanced. I like feeling a little queasy. Things that make me feel a little queasy intrigue me. I don't particularly like being comfortable. I like challenging and trying new things. And I'm, I'm, I find myself, like I said, constantly questioning my bias, my superficial sort of uh, reactions to things. Uh, if it makes me uncomfortable, I'm just as likely to delve further into it as dismiss it. But I'm, I'm more inclined these days to you know, delve in and learn more if I have a, a, a strong reaction against something that I think particularly that seems like it could be innovative. Yeah, that's a growth mindset that just keeps you pushing. You brought up Procreate, right? And I remember I felt the same way about Procreate. I thought, and digital art kind of, I didn't like it. I thought I had an aversion to it. And then it, I, I changed the, my mind and thought, I don't like it because I just don't like any art I've seen anybody make on Procreate. But maybe exactly. I can maybe I can make something on Procreate that I do like. And so maybe with NFTs, it's the same thing. Maybe I don't like what I've seen other people use them for, but maybe I can do something with them different. I think the biggest hurdle now that I'm seeing with NFTs is a is a mindset that people are trying to get over. How is a digital version of owning something better than owning the physical thing? And so what makes NFTs interesting too, not only could we sell beautiful digital art as is, but there's also a sub-layer of opportunity where we could allow further access in some way into the artist's live, lives or, or something like that. So think about companies can now, I think I might have given this uh, example before or last last podcast but let's say chipotle came out with a gold burrito nft mm -hmm. and so by holding this gold burrito not only is it a rare item but the sub layer and the physical aspect of it is that you get a free burrito every time you bring it into chipotle yeah or uh, a good example too could be maybe i sell an nft and only a certain amount of them like let's say i only sold 10 and that was the amount of mentorships or apprentices i could take on yeah. digitally yeah. and so you're providing a different level of access i think that's an interesting way to think about the nft space too how do you bring the physicality back into it let me bring it back to something that lewis said though really quickly it's like this idea of uh disgust or aversion that you have to certain things i had a friend who was an inventor a very successful inventor who said that his primary motivation the way he would get ideas was to walk through say a cvs and look at the amount of badly designed things that would really piss him off, like a badly designed toothbrush or a badly designed this or that. That disgust can actually be the catalyst for creating something great because you're looking at it and saying, that's horrible that we can do better. And it's really funny that we have this impulse to do that is like, 
yeah, people have designed toothbrushes for years, but he was, he was like, God, they're going wrong, you know, and I need to design a new toothbrush. The same thing tends to happen to me with things like NFTs. You know, I look at, or I don't know, digital forms of children's books where the interface on a digital children's book is just about turning pages. It's like, no, you're missing the opportunity there. The opportunity with a digital book is to tell a nonlinear story or a story that changes over time. That would be interesting. But when you do page turns and you make little honking noises with a, on a children's book, it does nothing to advance what the technology could be doing. So I think this is a place where I think another capacity of artists that is sometime un, sometimes underused is to be critical, you know, to say not to one another, not to other artists, but be, to be critical about what's happening in the world. Like, I think we should be outraged that digital children's books are so crappy, you know, that they're not really sort of uh, taking advantage of what the technology could give us. I'm outraged that NFTs are so crappy. They are terrible. They're, they're, the artwork out there, by and large, is not, doesn't have any, you know, it, it holds no interest for me. As a matter of fact, I'm repulsed by most of it. But when you get down to the basics of what this could be from a uh, economic standpoint, again, for artists or a cultural standpoint, there's what's cool about it, NFTs is that there's lots and lots of room for creativity and improvement, lots of room for improvement. We're, we're at the early stages of this stuff. So that, that's what is intriguing me about that and the idea that it, it does give power to artists. There's a great book that I read this summer. It was called it was called The Death of the Artist, which I would recommend to any artist, even though it probably, you know, the title doesn't sell itself very well and the cover's terrible as well. But the but in it the author talks in very real terms about the state of arts now and the state of artists and how difficult it is for us as gig workers to make a living and make, you know, and really we we're all working it hard. We are all working it hard. And then he does interviews with illustrators that you know and musicians that you're probably familiar with who are really candid and generous to say, yeah, I may seem like I'm successful because I've got thousands and thousands of likes on Instagram, but in fact, I'm going out of my mind you because know, I'm working so damn hard and it's just not right. We're really being beaten down. You know, I'm not a Pollyanna, but we need to start looking for other ways to make to make the world work for artists. We work for them, but, but I want to find a way to make the world work for us and make a creative life viable and also uh, creatively satisfying. And uh, I look forward to having offline conversations with you about the potential for some of these technologies, because I think it, it's areas that we, we need to start thinking about developing and finding ways to you know, express ourselves in, in ways that will uh, sort of advance the art and supports the arts in ways that are, are, unfortunately, our country doesn't really, I don't think they give adequate support to artists. And I, I think it's something that, that, that needs to be changed. And I'm, I keep looking for as I said, opportunities that will later be construed as luck. <laughs> Except you're creating yourself, so it's not luck. But no. I know what you mean. Yeah, precisely. Uh, do you have any other questions, Joe, for Scott? Or did, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about, Scott? I'm so happy that you were able to come and talk with us today. Uh, I was very happy to be invited. It was, just, it was really good to see you guys. I did think we should talk a little bit more in depth around your uh, Nickelodeon logo. I think that was just so genius of what you guys came up with and how you came up with it and how you chose to do the branding. I'd love for you to dig into that story a little bit. It's a perfect question because it links to what I was just talking about. Okay. So yeah. we were outsiders. We knew nothing about the television realm. As a matter of fact, I didn't care for television. I'll go even further. I abhorred the look of TV, conventional television. And so because we stepped into an area, into a place where nobody else was taking it seriously, we thought that we could enact improvements, credible, interesting, and sort of seismic changes, not only in the interstitial, but of course in programming as well, right? You're able to really change things up. So I was disgusted by the looks of conventional TV graphics. It was all spinning early computer work. It had, you know, like these strange sort of like film reels and dazzling little bits of light, fragments of light. And it was, it was what we all hated computer graphics for because it was a shortcut to the real. 
you know, is like using gradients and using crappy sort of programs. And so you get into an opportunity like Nickelodeon, suddenly the creative tyrant in you comes out and you say, there will be no computer graphics. There will be no sort of sampled music. It's all going to be real music. The voice of the of the on-air personalities are not going to sound like Tom Brokaw. They're going to sound like real people. They're going to fumble over things. They're going to talk about things in, in a conversational manner. This was heady times for me. It was like, you know, let's find, let's do what the networks aren't doing. You know, let's, let's choose doo-wop music for Nickelodeon, which makes no sense. No sense whatsoever, but it was a, except for that it was a distinctive sound. And then so with the Nickelodeon logo, we wanted to be the antithesis of corporate sort of television. So we said, okay, let's take a kid's perspective on this. Okay. And we, we related to the executives at Nickelodeon, a game that we used to play as kids, which is I claim it. I don't know if you ever played a variation on this game, but it was a dumb game that we used to play. And it seems like I'm not the only one where we'd be driving down the road and my brothers and I would like point at things and say, that car, I claim it. That was the game. Basically, we're going to claim things. Well, I said, we're going to claim certain things for Nickelodeon. We're going to claim a color orange. And the reason that we're going to claim the color orange is because according to uh, the uh, testing research that we've done, market research that we've done, the, the color that adults most disliked, least liked at that time was orange and also slime green. So those became the two colors that we use for Nickelodeon. We also said, we're not going to have a static logo. We are going to have a logo that is constantly changing and it's going to be an orange and it's going to be, we had a word, a corny word for it. We call it flexi logos, but I think we sort of revolutionized identity for a short period of time in having an, an on-air look that was constantly changing, constantly in flux. We, you know, I don't know what the final library number was, but we had about, you know, I'm right, you know, over a thousand different uh, Nickelodeon logos that would be used on a regular sort of cycling basis. Some done by um, illustrators that you're familiar with, like Marianne Lloyd. She did some of the early uh, Nickelodeon logos. I did a few, uh, Michael Bartolos, you know, there's really a, a number of, you know, sort of well-known illustrators that were, uh, took part in creating the Nickelodeon logo. It was all an ethos. The idea was we wanted to create the sense that it was created by and for kids which to some degree was not technically true, but certainly the, the channel had the feeling of that because it wasn't highly polished and it was a little frenetic and fun. And that's what made it uh, particularly distinctive. That still is part of my DNA is trying to think about identities for networks or identities for companies that are not based solely on the logo, but on the inherent qualities of the specific of the specific company. So it gets you into areas of immersion that I love, which is, you know, we're getting to, well, what does the, what does Nickelodeon sound like? You know, what does Cartoon Network sound like? The, uh, Comedy Central, the, the uh, on-air voice was uh, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, you know, and it was this distinctive sort of ironic voice that was very distinctive. The VJs on, on MTV were people that were not professional, but we're enthusiastic uh, and very interested in music. People like Jancy Dunn, who, who I've now recently done a children's book with, was one of the original VJs on MTV. Yeah, those networks really change media. It's it's why podcasts sound the way they sound. It's why NPR sounds the way it sounds. It's it was conscious effort to move away from the professional sound and into something that was much more conversational. And I think is an illustration of something that I try to do in anything that I'm dealing with in media is to warm up what can be a very cold media, find ways to warm things up. It makes it more approachable. So yeah, that's nice. Oh yeah. You know, like, like I'm feeling like I, I'm really sort of in a happy place as to what's happening in radio, uh, what's happening in podcasts and even what's happening in movies. I mean, Chloe Zhao's movies are groundbreaking there, you know, for so many reasons, because in some ways she's taking on the concept of integrating and bringing in real voices. You know, she, her actors are not professional actors at all. And, but, but then she'll, you know, except for like, you know, she'll bring in two, like in the latest one, Francis McDormand, and there's a few other professional actors, but mostly those are non-professional actors that are given respect and given excellent cinematography and beautiful soundtrack 
to create movies that are unlike, I think, if not unlike something we've ever seen before, it's something that we rarely see in film. And I'm hoping we'll see more of that type of Tell thing. me about her movie, The Rider, and then I have a question about Nickelodeon. Oh, the Rider, in, uh, in, which is a movie in uh, 2018, was, was one of the best films I saw that year. It's, and it's really worth seeing in that it, it seamlessly sort of connects real people with, again, the respect of uh, high-end cinematography and music and such. So go ahead, Nickelodeon. The yeah. question I have. So I know, you know, you were involved in, in creating the, the logo, the brand, the brand behind Nickelodeon in the, was this in yeah. the early 80s? 85. Yeah, 85. And how long were you working with them for? Until I left, left to move up here and actually beyond because I was developing a television show for them when I moved up here. I was, mo- I was developing a show called Sparky and Arf Man for Nickelodeon and uh, another show for Disney. I was, was my hopes to... Uh, so I had moved from uh, on-air promotion to programming, basically. We had worked with uh, the, our executives, moved into that realm, and we moved with them. And uh, we're developing... A number of animated shows, actually. So, uh, but lately, I then got sort of in the flow of you know writing and illustrating children's books, um, and I still hope that uh, I tried a few years ago to create a production company here in Portland that would develop uh, original animated shows for kids, and just found that while the investment community here was, I think, entertained and really interested in my my pitches. Uh, when it really came down to investing, it became it was it was too daunting for them. Uh, so I, it's something that I continue to hope for. I hope that we're we're able to develop a little bit more of a production community here, so that we're able to have a different relationship with companies such as Nickelodeon. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I was just curious of what time you were, you know, what time frame you were working there because Nickelodeon in the early '80s it was brand new. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, Nickelodeon. They were there basically in the in the very beginning. Yeah, Nickelodeon, uh, their original logo was a pinball uh, with sort of a rainbow background. And uh, I remember uh, sort of in a methodical and thoughtful way lambasting that as being all of the elements of, of how uh, not to think about a kid's kids network because it was based on nostalgia that kids didn't understand. They weren't playing pinball at the time uh, that uh, it, I, I made the case that the type of graphics that they were using actually was condescending to kids instead of inviting them in. And so by developing uh, a flexi logo, it implicitly was was participatory and it suggested to kids that they could be part of this, that this was not only uh, a network, but a club, you know, that they that they could or a community that they could be connected. Really to. cool. Well, I'm so happy that, like I said, again, I'm so happy you came and talked to us today. I don't have any any other questions? I think we talked about what I really, what I think we wanted to talk about. You happy too, Joe? Yeah, this was great. I'd love to have you on again. Yeah, I'd love to. If you want to talk about a specific subject, I'm happy to. And actually, I'd like to talk with you both offline about NFTs at some point. Sure. Sounds of good. course. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.